Sounds like everybody is there. We'll begin reading uh, in verse 1. Word of God says, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is Ahasuerus, which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia over a hundred and seven and twenty provinces, that in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the palace, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even a hundred and fourscore days. When these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace, both unto great and small, seven days, in the court of the garden of the king's palace, where were white, green, and blue hangings, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and Pillars of marble, the beds were of gold and silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. And they gave them drink in vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse one from another, and royal wine in abundance, according to the state of the king. And the drinking was according to the law, none did compel. For so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure." Also Vashti the queen made a feast for the women in the royal house, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, they must have been brothers, Zathar and Karkos, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king, to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal, to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. Then the king said to the wise men, which knew the times, for so was the king's manner toward all that knew law and judgment. And the next unto him was Karshanah, Shethar, Admathah, Tarshish, Maresh, Marshana, and Mamukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, which saw the king's face and which sat first in the kingdom. What shall we do unto the queen Vashti according to law? Because she hath not performed the commandment of the king Ahasuerus by the chamberlains. And Mamukan answered before the king and the princes, Vashti the queen hath not done wrong to the king only, but also to all the princes." and to all the people that are in all the province of the king Ahasuerus. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women, so that they shall despise their husbands in their eyes when it shall be re reported. The king Ahasuerus commanded Vashti the queen to be brought in before him, but she came not. Likewise shall the ladies of Persia and Media say this day unto all the king's princes which have heard of the deed of the queen, Thus shall there arise too much contempt and wrath. If it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes that it be not altered, that Vashti come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. And when the king's decree which he shall make shall be published throughout all his empire, for it is great, all the wives shall give to their husbands honor, 
both the great and small. And the saying pleased the king and the princes. And the king did according to the word of Memucan. For he sent letters into all the king's provinces, into every province according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language, that every man should bear rule in his own house, and that it should be published according to the language of every people. Thank you for reading with me. Uh, we're going to pray, and I want to preach to you this morning on the thought of it began in a garden. It began in a garden. Will you pray with me? Lord, we need your help this morning to preach your word. Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit would teach our hearts this morning and point us to Christ and point us to the grand story of redemption that is told in your word. And Lord, how that Esther, especially this chapter, uh, particularly this chapter, uh, points us to the to the big story of the scripture and redemption through Jesus Christ. Lord, help me to preach your gospel. Help me to preach Jesus crucified for us this morning. For it's in his name and for his sake we pray. Amen. In reading the book of Esther, we, we learn that this is more than just a, a, a historical narrative. We learn that it's more than, as some have suggested, that this is particularly, this story is particularly the historical background for the Jewish feast of Purim. It, it certainly is a, a historical narrative, but, but the story here is much bigger. You see, Esther is one scene in the grand story of redemption that is told to us in the Scripture. It's not a coincidence that the book of Esther begins in a beautiful garden at a seven-day-long event. I hope that your ears are starting to perk up. I hope that something went off in your mind and you said, wait a minute, seven days and a garden. That's not the first time I've read that in the Scripture. No, as a matter of fact, we are met with seven days and a garden in the first two chapters of the Bible. You see, Esther is one story that points to the big story of the Scriptures. And it all began in a garden. And if you'll bear with me for a few minutes this morning, I want to make some connections between Esther 1 and the big story of the Scripture. I believe that the writer of Esther, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is, is just pointing us to the grand narrative in his recordings of, of the goings-on in the reign of Xerxes. And if you'll look with me for just a few minutes, again, we'll make three connections between Esther 1 and the grand narrative of the Scripture. The book of Esther begins this this first connection, I'm calling it a banquet in the garden. A banquet in the garden. The story begins in the third year of Ahasuerus or Xerxes, the ruler of the Persian Empire. He had a six-month-long party in the palace that culminated with a seven-day after-party in the palace garden. Now, it must have been a a beautiful place, the king's garden. The writer describes it as being adorned with fine linen, precious metal, 
precious stone. But the writer gives attention to more than just the appearance of this garden. And he directs our attention to the activities in this garden at this garden party. And there are two activities that come to the forefront of the account of the garden banquet. The banquet in the royal garden was marked, first of all, by indulgence. It was marked by indulgence. Verses 7 and 8, it says, And they gave, excuse me, and they gave them drink in vessels of gold, being diverse one from another, and royal wine in abundance, according to the state of the king. And the drinking was according to the law. None did compel. For so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do every man according to his pleasure. From what I have read, it was the custom, it was customary at these types of banquets, uh, two different suggestions about how this went down. Well, one, some say that there was a toastmaster and the people there could only drink as directed by the toastmaster. Others have said that people could only drink when the king himself drank. Well, however that may have went down, all of those restrictions were eased in this, in this banquet party. Xerxes eased the restrictions and gave the royal law that the guests were to drink as often and as much as they pleased. We already know the story's about to go downhill, don't we? We're not surprised when the writer uh, of the book of Esther tells us in verse 10 that on the seventh day, the king was drunk and apparently crazy drunk. Crunk, they call that. Because he gets the bright idea that Queen Vashti should come from her party over at her house over to the palace to be viewed by the drunken dignitaries there with him. Leads us to the next activity at the center of Xerxes' garden banquet. Not only was it marked by indulgence, but it was marked by insubordination. Xerxes sent his team of seven eunuchs to bring the queen to the banquet told her the king's order that to come and show the crown, put on the crown and come to his palace. Her response was, it's not happening ever. Rabbinic tradition holds that when Xerxes told her to don the crown and come to the banquet that he was holding, that that's all he intended for her to have on when she got there. And the queen, in the interest of preserving her modesty and her dignity, refused to go to the palace. I want to remind you that we're not talking about the Jewish nation here. We're not talking about God's people here. We're talking about a, from by all accounts, uh, an empire that was ruled by a wicked man. We know that they were a pagan empire. We know that they served many gods. 
Yet here is Queen Vashti refusing to go and show herself, refusing to be immodest there when her king told her to. I wish that women in our modern society and even the modern church were as virtuous as this pagan woman in a pagan society in an ancient empire. We can follow, ladies, you can follow the example of Vashti here and refuse to acquiesce your body, your modesty, and your dignity to a culture that will only demand that you show more. Sadly, it's not just a cultural thing. And I want to commend you that I haven't, I haven't seen this here not even once. But there are churches where it is just awful what women wear to church. And I can't help but think that if Queen Vashti were to visit some of our modern churches, that she might stand up in the middle of the service and look around and say, put you some clothes on, ladies. That concludes this public service announcement. We now rejoin our regularly scheduled sermon, somewhat in progress. I'm not here to defend or prosecute Vashti's motives in disobeying the king. But the bottom line is that she was insubordinate to the king's command. We find somewhat of a connection between the beautiful garden at the palace in Shushan and the beautiful garden in Eden. God commanded, he set the table for Adam and Eve there in Eden. They had plenty of whatever they needed and whatever they wanted. With the exception of one tree, they had access to everything in the garden. And God said, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't touch it. <laughs> don't eat the fruit of that tree. However, they indulged in the one thing that God said not to indulge in. The one command that God gave, they were insubordinate to. They disobeyed the commandment that God had given them. They took what God said for them not to take. And their insubordination in the Garden of Eden and the insubordination at the garden banquet at the palace in Shushan, whether its motives were for right or wrong. Regardless, the insubordination and the indulgence, the whole thing that got messed up there in that garden, all it was not without consequences. We're going to move forward from that connection of the banquet in the garden to see the banishment from the garden. The banishment from the garden. As you could imagine, with the pride of a world monarch being rebuffed in front of all of his buddies by his queen, he was angry. 
Verse 12 tells us that the king was very wroth and that his anger burned within him. That's the Hebrew way of saying the king pitched a royal fit. And in his rage, that reminds me, time out. I got to correct a joke I tried to make last week. I said something about cramming 10 years of school into four and you didn't laugh and I couldn't figure out why. And my wife told me at lunch and I was horrified and I said it backwards. I I crammed, if you believe, you've known me now for a little over four years and if you believe I did 10 years worth of schoolwork in four, that's on you, not me, number one. Secondly, the joke was that I crammed four years into 10. Anyway, Xerxes pitched a royal fit, and in his rage, he called a meeting of the bylaw committee and asked what was to be done to Vashti for her her insubordination to his command. Well, in verse 14, the writer introduces us to a fellow by the name of Memukon. Sounds like something you'd take if you had a sinus infection, don't it? I mean, you can almost hear the commercial. You have itchy, watery eyes and runny nose and chest congestion. Try twice a day Memukon so you won't hack during church. Anyway, Memukon aggravates this whole situation by saying that Vashti's refusal was not just against the king, but against the entire kingdom. And his reasoning was that word was going to get out about what happened in the palace and the women's liberation movement would spread throughout the kingdom, causing all kinds of trouble, more disobedience. His solution is found in verse 19. Let there go a royal commandment from the king and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes. Now, you know what that means. He's not just referencing the empire, but the laws of the Medes and the Persians was supposedly, supposedly, did I just say supposedly? What is wrong with me today? It was supposedly irrevocable unchangeable. He's wanting to put out something that was going to affect everyone forever. That it be not altered that Vashti come no more before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better. Mamukhan's solution was to make an irrevocable law that Vashti be be banished from the king's presence and her royalty be given to another. Well, this advice did please the king. He ordered Vashti's banishment. There are a couple of noteworthy points about this banishment from the garden. Examine with me the irony of this banishment, the irony. Whoever wrote the book of Esther was a literary genius the way they framed this story. And I think this is one of those places 
where the writer is taking a jab at Xerxes. He's really making fun of the king here. The decree, really, that Vashti be banished from the king's presence, isn't that what she wanted to begin with? He, she didn't want the king gawking at her or his buddies gawking at her. She didn't want to see him anyway. She didn't want to come over there. So he said, okay, you can't see me anymore. Boy, he showed her, didn't he? But it's not just that the writer is poking fun at this world monarch. I believe that he's also drawing out a contrast between this fickle, petty, capricious king and the sovereign God of the universe who rules heaven and earth and who made the sea and the dry land. Marvin Brenneman wrote that the author knew the weaknesses of human kings and officials. The author had faith in a God who as king and lord of the universe is above all forms of capriciousness and pettiness. Will you listen while I preach here for, for just a minute? The political rulers of this world have proven themselves time and time again to be capricious, fickle, impulsive, inconsistent, self-serving, self-aggrandizing, self-congratulating fools. But the one who really is in control, the one who has decreed and known the end even from the beginning, the one who calls the shots in the universe rules with true wisdom, true power, true authority, and therefore doesn't need to be petty like the rulers of this world. I would urge you to follow the example of the writer of Esther and put your trust completely in the Lord, especially in these days when our officials, our rulers, we don't say that in America. We don't have rulers. They work for us. Supposed to. But in this day when they have proven themselves to be self-serving, ineffective, rotten to the core, we're still talking about, well, surely somebody up there. No, there's one up there, not on Capitol Hill, that we put our trust in. <laughs> Don't trust in any government figure. They're altogether untrustworthy. They're fickle, inconsistent, petty, capricious. But put your trust in the righteous ruler of the universe, for he never changes. He's always consistent. He's always trustworthy. He's never failed. He don't shift one day uh, to another. His views don't evolve over time. He He's not trying to get reelected because he's never going to be out of office. Put your trust in Him. You can count on Him to be fair, to rule in mercy, wisdom, and perfect righteousness. The irony of the king's decree. He really just, in doing what he did, he, he really just showed himself to be a fickle, petty ruler. 
He also points out, the writer does, the impact of the king's decree. Verses 20 through 22. When the king's decree which he shall make shall be published throughout all his empire, for it is great, all the wives shall give to their husbands honor both to great and small. And the saying pleased the king. Well, of course it did. And the princes. And the king did according to the word of Mamukan. For he sent letters into all the king's provinces, unto every province, according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language, that every man, get this, that every man should bear rule in his own house, and that it should be published according to the language of every people. Vashti's insubordination and the subsequent decree of her banishment ended up having a far-reaching impact. What started at a garden party and affected the palace, moved from there to all the people in every province that every man should be the ruler of his own house. In other words, the women were to mind their husbands. Can you imagine the laughing that went on in the Persian Empire when the Whatever, however they got messages out in those days, I, I'm assuming a guy on a dromedary or a horse or a mule or a donkey or something rolls up to the house and hands them a letter from the king and they open the seal and unroll it. Can you imagine the laughter that was going on in the Persian Empire that day when the women read the mail that they were to... Do whatever their husband told them. The women chuckled, I'm sure. But again, there are some parallels, some connections to be made. between what happened, what began at the garden there in, in Shushan to what happened in the Garden of Eden. In fact, we find a similarity between the decree that went out to the Persian provinces and the one that God gave to Eve in the Garden of Eden. And we can't ignore this connection. The decree to the Persians was that the women were to be submissive to their husbands. And let's look at that against the backdrop of what God said to Eve in Genesis 3.16. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband." And he shall rule over thee. As Vashti's insubordination affected all of the women in the kingdom, the consequence of Eve's sin was submission and even subservience to Adam. Another way of stating that is to say that one of the results of the fall in the Garden of Eden, one of the results of Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden was difficulty in marriage relationships. Because of Eve's disobedience and Adam's disobedience, they were banished from God's garden in Eden. But their banishment had a much larger impact than they ever imagined. Not only were they banished from God's presence, but all humanity has been affected by and infected with their sin. And apart from Christ, without, sinner, without, without His work in our lives, without our salvation, as sinners, we are strangers 
and aliens banished from the presence of God. Their sin and the consequences of it has been passed upon the entire human race. Paul wrote in Romans 5.12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. This narrative reminds us that because of our sins, we are all exiles from God's paradise. The decree has come down from the king in the heavenly palace that we are all offenders and that we're all exiles, strangers and aliens from the presence and blessings of God. And that is, of course, apart from Christ. With that, we'll turn to our third connection that we make here. It was the banquet in the garden. That's where it all went wrong. That was where there was sin. That's where there was indulgence. That's where there was disobedience. And it resulted in the banishment from the garden. What began really between two people in a garden affected the whole empire, which was really a world empire at the time. And our sin, Adam and Eve's sin, has spread from that garden all humanity because of it we have been alienated from God the story doesn't end there the third connection we can make is what I'm calling the beginning after the garden the beginning after the garden chapter 1 ends with an irrevocable law that every man was to be the ruler of his home, and that was published throughout the kingdom. We leave chapter 1 with the feeling that things aren't right <laughs> in the Persian kingdom. It gives us a sense of foreboding concerning what is going to happen next. But the bleak end of the king's banquet where it all went wrong and how that spread throughout the world at that time. The bleak end of the king's banquet, it, it's only the beginning of this story that began in a garden. Now I want to point out a couple of attributes of the beginning that we find at the end of, can I just say Xerxes from now on? Xerxes' garden banquet. In this beginning, we're, in this beginning after the garden, we're given an introduction. We're given an introduction. We didn't read into chapter 2, but over in chapter 2, the, the king has settled down. And he remembers this incident involving Vashti. And... He remembers that he had banished her. Some time had went by, not sure exactly how long, but a pretty good amount of time, I suppose. And apparently he is showing signs of remorse, possibly loneliness, because his servants tell him that he should search for a new queen among the young virgins in the kingdom. As we read on, 
In chapter 2, we are finally introduced to Esther. And Esther will not only become queen, but she will also be the instrument through whom God delivers his people. Chapter 2 marks a new beginning after the fall of Vashti at the king's garden party. There's a new beginning that comes out of all of the sin and the debauchery at the garden party. <coughs> we move on. Not only gives us an introduction, this new beginning, introduces us to the one, the human agent through whom God would work to save his people. But it also gives us an illustration. As I said in the introduction, the book of Esther is a scene in the grand story of salvation. The story of illustrates how God worked to bring, at that time, to bring salvation to his people. But it also serves as an illustration of how God would work to bring salvation to his people of every age. One writer said, Esther depicts the deliverer who brings out the reversal of circumstances for those on the underside, who brings them justice and equity, and who elevates them over those who would bring them nothing but dishonor. If you'll give me just a moment, I, I want to do my best to explain the illustration that we find here in Esther 1 in the first eight verses of Esther 2. As we are introduced to Esther, as a result of the banishment of Vashti from the king's presence, there is also an introduction that arose in the Garden of Eden as God was handing out guilty verdicts and their sentence of banishment from his presence to Adam and Eve. As the guilty verdict was being handed down, as their sentence was being read, that they would be banished from his presence, we are also introduced to the Redeemer in the same garden where sin began to grow, salvation would begin to bloom. For God said to the snake in Genesis 3.15, I hope you're already familiar with this verse. We use it a lot. For I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And in that one sentence... From all the indulgence and the insubordination, from the rebellion against God that happened in the garden, from the consequences of sin and death being brought into the human race, and that would spread to each and every one of us, we are also introduced to the one whom God would save, through whom God would save his people. We are introduced right there where the fall happened, right there where sin began to grow. We are reduced introduced to the Redeemer, the Savior, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, it was Jesus who bought our salvation in no other place than a garden. 
For John wrote in John 19, 41, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. While on the cross in that garden, he took our sin and our banishment from the presence of God. Oh, you can hear him cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Oh, he went into a garden. And he was banished from the presence of God momentarily to bring near those who had been banished from God's presence because of sin that happened in a garden a long, long time ago. And from that garden perspective, we are left with a sense of tragedy, that things aren't right, and a sense of foreboding about the future as Jesus dies on a cross in a garden. But in the same garden where it looked like the end, in the same garden where it looked like ruin, there was a tomb which marked a new beginning. John continues in John 19. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new sepulcher, a new tomb, wherein never yet was man laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was near at hand. And the first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. In the same garden where the Redeemer's heel was bruised, the head of the garden snake was crushed as the Spirit of God invaded the only slightly used tomb and raised a new creation who makes new creations out of exiles from paradise. And one day He's going to restore paradise to those who will turn from their sin and put their faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. One day we will have a banquet in His new better and eternal garden paradise because he went into a garden and paid for the sin that was committed in a garden at the beginning because it was from a garden where a new creature came forth. It was in a garden that he rose from the dead and gave us a new standing before God. If we will put our faith in that, we will enjoy our presence, his presence for eternity with Him in heaven. Because I read over there in the book of Revelation, where in the new heaven and the new earth, there is a garden. And the tree of life is there. And it brings forth fruit every month. And there's a river that flows from the throne. Oh, it's a picture that takes us back to the original creation. But then it's also different. We find the tree of life and we find that its leaves are for the healing of the nations and we never find any sin, any corruption, any lie, nothing abominable, nothing wrong, nothing hurtful, nothing sickening, nothing negative whatsoever entering into that place again. It's not just the Garden of Eden. It's the Garden of Eden only better because Jesus is the light thereof and there's no more night and there's no more darkness in that place. Like Adam and Eve in Eden. 
And like Esther in Persia, our story of salvation, it begins with ugly, sinful debauchery in a garden. But our stories don't have to end in that garden. For one went into the garden of our sin, our sleaze, and our shame to give us a new beginning and a new standing before God. A promotion whereby we are lifted from our sinfulness of the Garden of Eden into the royal palace with Christ in the heavenlies. Which we know because we've already read Esther is exactly what happens with Esther. Oh, this is more than just a historical narrative we're reading about. Oh no, this is another story that tells the old, old story of Jesus and His love. It's another story that tells our story of how we fail, how sin was passed to us from the goings on in a garden, and how it was also recovered, made new in a garden by Jesus. Oh, He is our hope. Listen, apart from Him, we've all been planted in a garden of ruin. But because of Him, we grow up looking forward to a new garden in His presence where we live with joy in Him forevermore. Is that your hope today? This is your story if you've trusted Christ. Will you stand with me?